Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. Our seminar series provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. Our 10-minute lesson series aims to educate and inform on particular areas of policy, giving a brief overview somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on key points that people really need to know. And our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This week is one of those. So this week marks International Day of Democracy. Democracy is about people, equality and participation. Social Justice Ireland has proposed a policy framework for a new social contract that identifies five key policy outcomes, one of which is good governance. What's needed then to achieve that is open, transparent, accountable structures, social dialogue and real participation or deliberative democracy. So this week I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Matt Ryan from Southampton University to discuss democracy and participation and his recently published work why citizen participation succeeds or fails, a comparative analysis of participatory budgeting. We hope you enjoy. We might begin with, I suppose, just a discussion on deliberative democracy and what yeah. that is, because I think most of us are have a fairly decent idea of what we consider democracy to be. Actually, we might just start reading yeah. with what, what we think democracy is. God, this is so, this is a really interesting question because it's kind of, the first slide on any uh, kind of specialist class I do for, for undergraduate students, what is democracy? And the whole point is to deconstruct it and say, yeah. you know, do we even know what it means? Um, so obviously, you know, it's democratic rule by the people, but the first question is what does rule mean? Does it mean everyone decides together? Does it mean we give representatives a choice? We, we elect them, or maybe it means that we randomly select some people and we rotate around responsibilities and so who's actually so what you know I mean that comes to the second question who are the people you know very in, in, in all our jurisdictions societies we systematically exclude some people possibly that's for good reasons like people who are less than 6 18 16 10 or whatever it wants to be um but also we exclude immigrants for 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 certain periods of time or from certain decisions um and we exclude people in other kind of uh, less obvious, maybe more sinister ways, right? By making them their high administrative burdens for them to actually be involved in politics vis-a-vis the other people. So, what is democracy? It's 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 some kind of rule by the people, but it's also kind of an ethos and a principle. I think I say in the book at the start, like for me, it's that you know, the principle is that everybody has something to give. Everyone has something to, um, uh, yeah. Everyone, everyone basically has, has something that they can contribute to to kind of societal decisions. Yeah, what you actually say is because that was I have this what I have this line taken out was that democracy presumes that everybody has something worthwhile to contribute. Good, I was struggling for that, but I couldn't remember <laughs> what I said. <laughs> but but that that's that that's it in a nutshell. I think that's the that's the ethos of it for me, and that's why I think it's always something to come back to. I mean, it's interesting being an academic you interact with people all over the world and it was really interesting for me having assumed that democracy was this great thing uh, uh and this obvious good for so many years you can go and talk to people in places like nigeria or saudi arabia and they'll say to you well, why, why is it better than authoritarian rule and when, when you're first confronted with that question it's kind of it, it knocks you back and you say okay i have to um i have to explain this and um you know there are obvious reasons you, you, you know it means that you know, liberal democracies mean that you can't just have the rug pulled pull out from under you. You have some rights to your participation, to, to, to your, you know, to, you know, being respected in, in various ways. You have social rights and, and that. Um, so, so that's an obvious part of what it is. I suppose the textbook definitions are always rule of law, um, you know, strong, you know, opposition, uh, government, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so long since I've taught the stuff that I, I can't even remember what the seven conditions I would have come up with are. But I think it's more important to think like there are so 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 if you were teaching on a class on democracy, you, where you get to would be all the critical uh, accounts of democracy. So your kind of feminist accounts of democracy, your participatory and deliberative accounts of democracy, your environmental accounts, and that kind of thing. So um uh, uh those are the th- there's an ethos around it, which is kind of what academics debate about what does it actually mean participative democracy or deliberative democracy then 
is different again. So most of us, our engagement is we go and we vote and we're done. Yeah, to some extent. So I think, I think, uh, so, so the main institutions to which we participate in democracy are, number one, you, you have a right to vote and you vote. The second less obvious one, which less people do, is actually stand for election. So, you know, we still need people that we actually elect. Um, and then there's a whole group of people around that that are there in, in a kind of a, in a representative model, you still have to have the kind of interest group formation, people like Social Justice Ireland, who are kind of advocacy groups, all the think tanks, everyone uh, who's doing that kind of civil society. It doesn't really work without that, even though it's kind of an opposition or a, um, a countervailing power to government. But I suppose what... So I think it's worth talking about participatory and deliberative democracy in turn. Participatory democracy is a little bit of an older, um, both of these things go back forever, right? And, and in various guises. But in terms of political theory, um, participatory theory was really a reaction to um, uh, your representative, liberal, democratic kind of minimal version of democracy. You vote every few years, you can throw the rascals out and that's that's your power, essentially. You, you, every five years, you look at the manifestos and you say, okay, who am I going for four years or whatever it is and wherever you live? And uh, the participatory thing, it's a lot, a lot of it's associated with Carl Pym, who became a very famous and brilliant feminist theorist, uh, a political philosopher, but um, she wrote a book called Participatory Democratic Theory, I think that's what it was called, um, don't myself know, back in the, back around 1970, I think it came out. And I was really trying to say, look, there's a tradition here which isn't minimalist. There are people who have written about having more, greater participation, people being, you know, freedom being about the ability to actually get involved and decide more regularly or whenever you want so that you don't have this restriction within the five years to do that. So, you know, these things all, all move together uh, in different ways. And then the deliberative Democrats, I suppose, you know, there's, you know, I, I'm an anorak, so I can get into the, the history of this, but the Deliberative Democrats kind of emerge in a few different streams, but they're mostly interested in, they kind of coalesce around this idea that um, they weren't, they, one of their critiques of what, what was going on, particularly when we had this kind of what we call behaviorist revolution, basically opinion polling as a way of gathering information from people and understanding their behavior by basically asking them in large numbers and trying to generalize from that what people think and what they want. Well, they said, well, those are relatively kind of uninformed preferences that people give you in an opinion poll, right? They're, you're just kind of ringing them up as it was before or, you're, um, or, or you're, they're doing something online and they're not really thinking too carefully and they're not getting an interaction with their fellow citizens. So the idea, is of, the, idea of the deliberative Democrat is that, you know, what, what's actually important that, goes back to Jürgen Hammermas is that in the public sphere is that the force of better arguments is what le legitimizes democracy and in some, ex some extent it's linked to the idea that if I make a decision that affects you I have to at least explain it to you in in terms that you would understand and accept you know so we might you know we might not always agree but there was a criticism of democracy early on because it seemed to be you know we have to get to some kind of um, compromise where we all agree consensus is the word I'm looking for actually and uh you know, uh, yeah, they're yeah, so less compromise effectively, and, and kind of that they, they they're a bit against bargaining. You know, deliberative Democrats, which I think that doesn't sit as well with me. I think bargaining has to be part of politics, and sometimes it's a positive thing. They, some people would disagree with me on that, but effectively, what they're what they're interested in is a more collective rationality, where people come together and discuss things and understand. You know, put themselves in others' shoes, which I think is really important, and that's part of what democracy should be about: is trying to understand people from another perspective and maybe see what the collective goods are rather than just thinking about your own individual good, goods and it shouldn't be just kind of a rational choice of what's the best thing for me I'll vote for that um screw the rest uh, you know hopefully I win um so I think that's that's kind of the critique that deliberative democracy brings and that's been incorporated in some ways into politics over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and then obviously you have these kind of innovations, which we'll probably talk about, which, which, which try to uh, inculcate some of those ideas from participatory and deliberative democracy into how we do politics and doing it better. What I thought was interesting is all of this requires energy. So for me to, for me to trundle along every four years and vote, I just have to leave my house. I, I appreciate, as you said, there are barriers to even that in terms of um, 
registering to vote, the sort of ID that I might need, you know, do I have to spend 70 quid on a driver's license or a passport to get ID? So, you know, there are barriers to that, but for, for the majority, um, voting is a very straightforward thing. I get my card in the post, I go around to the local school or the local hall, and I get my ticket and I fill it in and I pop it in the box and I'm done. So it does require more energy to do more. And yeah. again, what I thought was, again, at the very start of the book, and I've taken this bit out, is that injustice is a major motivator. So we spend a huge amount of energy writing small personal wrongs. So my, my car insurance is wrong. Or recently I got charged for a, the M50 toll. I got charged for a journey that I didn't make. I will stay on hold as long yeah. as it takes so that I don't have to pay that two euro 60 because it's yeah. just, it's not my toll. It wasn't my journey. I'm not paying yeah. it. Um, yeah. And yet we seem to be overwhelmed by the systemic wrongs that we see around us. And, right. and we're not able to put the same amount of energy into, um, you know, issues maybe like direct provision or issues like, uh, you know, housing or, you know, those kinds of so the, the big things yeah. that are wrong, we just seem to kind of go, oh, you know, uh, so I, I would never dream of spending 40 minutes on hold, maybe with a local councillor or my local TD to have a conversation. So I just thought that was, that was a really interesting way into um, participatory democracy and, and just sort of reframed it, I think, for me, that it does require energy that we do spend on injustices. We, you know, we're already there. We just need to maybe expand our horizons a little bit. Yeah, no, look, that I, uh, that's a really interesting take on it as well, because, I mean, I wrote I wrote that because I recognise it in myself, right? You know, it's not like I'm going out and doing, I'm not this amazing activist that does all this participatory democracy all the time. You know, I, I do get involved quite a bit, but um, uh, yeah, I, that, you know, I think it's because it's simpler. And I think look, this is a question, what you're picking up on is the question of, you know, do we really need politics? You know, a lot, a lot of friends of mine would say, they're, they're, you know, they're all shysters, they're all out for themselves, they're all cronies, what, um, you know, uh, all, I think all politicians are, are bad or they're all selfish or something like that. Why do we need it at all? I don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. In reality, almost everyone will, will do things that effectively are, are, are some kind of um, way of trying to protect their own rights when they're challenged. Um, but as you say, it's much easier when you're doing it in a kind of a market system where you're just making a complaint um, or you're, you know, you're just buying a good somewhere else because it wasn't, you know, you weren't happy with the last product. It's just a simpler form of um, uh, understanding how to fix something that you don't like. The problem is when we come to stuff that's collective and I, like you, you, you gave two great examples there of, of what are collective problems there's no easy solution to the housing problem because you've got people who are on rents you've got people who are on mortgage you've got people who are homeless you've got people and they all have conflicting incentives um and and therefore we have to actually get together to decide how to solve this as a society that's why we need politics i i i'm borrowing this from 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 a mentor of mine jerry stoker but like Politics is kind of designed to disappoint, right? Because nobody actually gets what they want. You don't go and buy this lovely, lovely other jumper in another um, uh, shop because you didn't like the one elsewhere. You have to actually compromise, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy for people who are advocating on behalf of one of those groups I just mentioned to say something that they think is really rational and obvious. But what they're actually saying to the other group is your, 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 what you think is important doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's that's the way it's being heard and actually getting people into a place where they can discuss that in a more safe space where it's not like in in the kind of the, the competition of politics when it's designed around competition for votes or for influence you really have like it, it incentivizes you to project a message which is a kind of a, a, a let's win our version of the argument message and you tend to be skeptical maybe of what other people are saying or you're afraid to give them any leeway because you might have to lose out and it's seen in that kind of comp- competitive way. So I suppose that kind of deliberative ideal is, is that you will uh, try and hear the other side and, and kind of give them the level of respect that their argument deserves and vice versa. Um, so, you know, that's, so when we make collective decisions, essentially, um, it requires that bit more effort because you have to overcome some of those barriers to thinking about uh, yourself and, and, and the simple things that you want. Again, I suppose I, I keep going back to the book every time. So um, 
I am. I'm basically throwing, throwing your words back at you. But one of the things that you have in the book is that budgets are so vital. So a, a budget is such a vital part of how how Ireland functions, how the UK functions, how Spain functions. Those national budgets dictate so much of our daily lives. And yet citizens have really the least say on those. So we're asked about moral or constitutional issues, but we're not as involved in the budgeting side of things. And I just, again, I thought that was a really interesting idea that when it comes to, I mean, we've had some big referendum here, they have been constitutional, they have been on moral issues. Mm. And yet the stuff that dictates my day-to-day -day life, uh, my bins, getting a fire engine to call if, if something happens, um, the roads, the paths, uh, green spaces, access to schools, how near my local hospital is, they're to do with money and how money is spent and how resources are allocated. And yet we mm -hmm. very little say, as you said, apart from the manifesto of the lads and lassies who are called to my door every couple of years. So it, it is interesting then that participatory budgeting is one of these democratic um, initiatives that, that has kind of appeared over the last 30 or 40 years. And I wonder yeah. if that's why yeah, so I think uh, two things. So one thing I forgot to say in response to your last question, but you picked up on it again there, is that the, the lads and lassies who come to our doors, like one thing that happens when people participate is they get a huge amount of re more respect for the lads and lassies who call to our doors and they don't they stop thinking all politicians are bad and they realise that most of them are actually good, but they have very different incentive structure to what might be obvious to them and you know they have different concerns and they're actually trying to aggregate everyone's concerns and do that work that maybe we could be doing a li little bit more of um, and it, it empowers people to understand more about how politics works right so um one of the interesting things about participatory budgeting is the people that went and and, and got involved in participatory budgeting have always kind of increased their budget literacy they understand a bit more about the budget which is like you've hinted at i mean it's often called the black box of of government right it's something that the the technicians the accountants and 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 the civil servants work work on you've got your kind of special advisors deciding what's politically acceptable uh you've got this complex arrangement essentially of people in 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 the in the uk it would be the treasury and the cabinet office talking to each other and um, different offices of government in, in in ireland as well um so you've got um you you've got that increased understanding of what is like you said effectively what decides almost everything so in in in, all, in every in every country and every jurisdiction uh where they do have control over budget matters that's the oh, that's the thing that you'll find every politician ready there for voting on trying to get uh their piece of um uh important whatever is important to them into the into the budget so, you know, people who work in politics understand the importance of the budget. Probably people outside it don't. I mean, a good example is Ireland, you know, when, you know, in 2007, 2008, nobody knew much about bonds and things like this. And suddenly they were talking about them. Everyone was learning about them and reading reading the papers. And, you know, um, suddenly people who I'd never thought would be talking about bonds were asking me about bonds, right? So I think, uh, and and all these kind of other things. So, um, but but these things are important. It's not, And it's not... The idea isn't that everybody learns everything and that everybody does everything. It's that, you know, people can get just enough information and have chains of delegation where they can kind of understand what's important for them to know about, about these things. But certainly um, budgeting and budgeting planning is a complicated area of, of government. Probably one thing that most people think of immediately is, uh, I mean, you mentioned a lot of the the... the this, what we call street level bureaucrats, but essentially the civil servants that you meet on the street, the police, the, the firemen, the teachers, the, um, like what, what, what we're not talking about really with participatory, although it's possible, is, is re we're talking about the discretionary spend that goes around all that, right? So the, the, main, the main budget of any jurisdiction is taken up by uh, wages for people that already work there and upkeep of buildings and roads or whatever it is. So, the buildings and the kind of depreciation and all that that's that's stuff that participatory budgeting doesn't it could touch but generally speaking it's not stuff that kind of fixed budget that's kind of necessary to keep things going it's not necessarily something that people think about but then obviously there's you know depending on the size of your jurisdiction there's a huge 
still discretionary budget, even though it's a minority of the overall budget, yeah. which is thinking about, you know, like the examples you gave, should we build a hospital here or should we build a school? Very simple, right? Or should we build a hospital or should we invest in the sewage this year? Or should we wait till next year until we, we, we do a big repaving scheme or putting in bike lanes or whatever it is? So budget sounds a bit arcane and I don't want to know about numbers. Whereas when you think about what it actually is, it's allocating the required resource to do the things that we need collectively. So, you know, you know, you're not going to pay for the street light outside your house. You're going to need some, there's no point in buying one street light. You need all the street lights on, on the road to be put in at once. So, so who's going to pay for that? And that's the question that you're dealing with when you're talking about a yearly budget, essentially. When you go down through the history of participatory budgeting, it Porto Alegre, is that, have I pronounced that correctly? Seems to as be. far as I know, <laughs> Porto Alegre, <laughs> I mean, we'll I don't speak that, Portuguese yeah. that well. No, yeah. but, but with, with our Irish accents, that, that, that's as good as we're going to get it. Um, but that's what they found was that people who consider themselves to be experts in policy making, their express priorities for expenditure on public works were different to what the, the citizenry wanted. So, you know, your, your, your civil servants kind of thought, well, okay, our priorities for next year are, is a repaving, is, is a cycle lane. And yet citizens turned around and said, well, actually, no, we, we, need, we need a community centre. We need somewhere for our young people to be. So that, that again, that's kind of, as you said, interesting to see that it, it, the accountability aspect of it and the communication aspect of it allows people to say, that's what you think we need, but it isn't actually what we need. We need something different. Um, I, I mean, we might go back to sort of Porto Alegre. Are you able to give me a potted history of participatory budgeting? Sure. Yeah. So but just just in reaction to what you said about um, about that interesting phenomenon, I mean, this is what makes makes it kind of amazing. Right? First of all, it's it's very unusual for people who are in power to kind of give it up and, and, and give it to others. And there's some we can talk about the conditions that that lead to that. But, it, but what's interesting is. You talk to politicians, they'll make a very good point, right? When you say we're doing participatory democracy or we should do participatory democracy, what, what a lot of them will say to you is, I do participatory democracy every Friday morning or every Saturday morning in my um, constituency yeah. surgeries. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, that's a very good point, right? They're, I mean, they're doing, they're giving, they're giving up a lot of time. And like what, what their skill is, what, what politicians' skill is, is actually kind of reading a room, listening to what people are, aggregating what people want, because at the end of the day, that's what keeps them in a job. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then, and then and acting on it. And it, they, they do a very good service for the most part in that respect, um, uh, even though we have to hold them for account when they don't. Uh, when they don't. Um, but the, the, the important thing there was that you get this collective rationality, which is what you picked up on. So in Porto Alegre in some of the first years, um, one of the things that politicians might think about doing is having kind of larger, what we might call vanity projects. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that, So they might think that the best thing to do is let's build a big building, like a hospital or something like that. And, and, and obviously we know, and a lot of research will tell us uh, in one respect that, you know, that's not always the best health intervention, right? It might be something as simple as washing your hands or, or something like that, that, that can be. But in, this, in, 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 in Porto Alegre, so what we're talking about here is relatively wealthy city by Brazilian standards, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you'll have the kind of um, favelas or um, uh, uh, unplanned settlements that have just propped up uh, where, where, where a lot of the poor people have come from rural areas in masses have, have, um, have located. And often because these are completely unplanned settlements, they'll be completely cut off from, uh, from, from, from the city centre. So in other words, people can't get... Um, downtown the buses stop somewhere they don't come up because there's no paving on the roads so simply paving the road is much better than uh building a health facility if you like because then when you pave the road they can get to the health facilities downtown they can also get to the jobs downtown they can get to everything that's downtown so those are the kind of things that people came back with they were saying you know what we want is actual sewage and paving rather than you know getting those basic things in in place rather than maybe you know building what the kind of obvious international donor thing might be to come in and doing that, even though that wasn't the case um, uh, so much here. So, um, uh, yeah, Porto Alegre, part of history. So one of the important things to understand is you're talking about um, 
again, in the story of democracy, what's often thought of the third wave of democratization. So the kind of Latin American countries, some of Southern Europe, which came out of their dictatorships around the 1970s and the 1980s. So Brazil emerges from, from its dictatorship. And there's a kind of big opening up of society, as you would expect. And uh, Porto Alegre was somewhere which had been, you know, very much the home of the some of the resistant movements, the unions. It was always a bit more left wing and um, uh, a bit more, let's say, uh, uh, it had, had a higher human development index. So uh, the things that go along with that meant that it had a kind of a more vibrant civil society. It still does. If you go there, there's people on the streets whistling. There's protests going on all the time. Um, there's a real vibrant uh, civil society there. Um, and so you get what, what happens around this time is there's in a couple of cities, there's the, the Workers' Party, which became, you know, at this point, it's kind of a small party coming out of the trade union movement. Some of the people who are imprisoned under the military dictatorship, some of those leaders, but it eventually grows into, I mean, people are probably familiar with um, Lula, uh, who was Brazilian president for 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 a long period from about 2000 to 2010. I think that's correct. I'd have to check that again. Um, and then and then Dilma. So this was their party, essentially. Uh, and they were quite associated with putting uh, the early participatory budgeting in place and the design around it. So you, you have those kind of conditions on the ground in, in Porto Alegre. And what, what, what they do effectively is they say that if we're going to, they win power, in a coalition, but they their their kind of manifesto pledge is we're going to give, we're going to do this participatory version of government. So they're working with the civil society organizations, but they're also kind of quite crucially opening it up to other civil society organizations and making participatory budgeting the only game in town. Another thing that's important to understand about Brazilian politics, but I think some people will recognize a bit of this in, in Irish politics, and it's less it's something that isn't is is less often seen in UK politics, is what we might call clientelism. So that's the idea that your your understanding of how you you interact with the politician is that you're their client and they're your patron and you basically buy their they they buy your votes through doing favors for you and that's very much like to an extreme the version of what happens in Brazil so much so that you'll get factory owners running for running for office and they'll say I'll give you a pair of shoes if you vote for if you vote for me, that kind of thing, right? Or I'll give you the left shoe and you can have the right to if I win the election. So that kind of, that's the kind of extreme example of the patron-client relation. So what they want to do is they wanted to get rid of that because that's not very democratic. So one way of bypassing it um, is to try and say to all the civil society organizations, everyone, if you want to you know, contribute to the budget and you want to get, get goods from the budget, you need to kind of do it through the PB. And so they took a big gamble on it. And in the first couple of years, some regions of the city, the city is divided up into, it was divided up into regions. And then within the regions, um, the way things are organized is that um, you'll have local neighborhood meetings kind of at the start of the year for people to prioritize what, you know, discuss the priorities in their neighborhoods. And then based on the number of people that turn up to those meetings and also on um, some, you know, statistical information about which, neighborhoods are more or less deprived um you'll then allocate funding later to to projects but like there was a real incentive for people to turn up because the more people that turned up the more delegates you could then elect from your region to the to higher budgets this was quite from from a democratic design point of view this was really important and what it all what it all ended up with is in the first couple of years maybe there weren't that many people that participated but what we get is these what we call demonstration effects where demonstrably the people who participated, those regions started getting money going into them. And this is not, this was not normal, right? The normal practice of, of city budgeting is money goes into the middle-class areas because they vote. Um, but interestingly, in, so, in some parts of Brazil, the middle-class really didn't interact with state provision because they had their own security, they had their own private kind of uh, privately funded, what we might think of as state goods. Um, so what happened was a lot of low, you know, you know, lower income people participated in ways that we wouldn't normally think of at the neighborhood level a lot of women participated it gets let the, the the gender difference gets less as you go up the levels of delegation but basically what you get is not the usual suspects turning up to these things and you get quite vibrant meetings with people really pushing for uh, the things that they wanted and learning from other neighborhoods how to negotiate this system um and then so so that's happening there in Belo Horizonte which is another big 
at the time the third biggest city in Brazil, I think still is. Um, so these are big, big Brazilian cities, you know, kind of, you're probably talking about similar population sizes to, to Dublin. And uh, they, they're kind of developing, you know, similar um, uh, uh, ideas. The PT is starting to move over to some of these other cities and win in other small towns, medium-sized cities. And they start inculcating slightly different takes on this that might be more of the budget allocated to PB in one place, more discretionary spending, essentially. Um, and then over time, so that's the part, of, I think you asked for a part of history of Porto Alegre, and I could go on to the part of history of the rest of the rest of it but that that's i'm losing i'm missing a lot of details but that'll give you a sense of what what happened here and why why it happened to some extent i think it's picked up on some really key points which is that at the clinic again the only people who are in the clinic of the local we'll say here for the sake of the local local council the local td are people with the energy and the means to be able to go and sit with their local td and they've been able to articulate what their issues are this has opened it up to people who generally didn't have a voice so and I think that's that to me that's a key part of this participatory budgeting process is that it opens the floor because I, I think you're right like when, when you look at say civil society organizations these are people with maybe skin in the game do you know that kind of thing um or, or you're getting the usual suspects and I know you kind of touch on that as well do you know what I mean that you you will you'll, you'll get a certain types of people are involved in in, in you know local organizations and and can maybe sometimes dominate them um, so this opens the floor but again also it's that inversion of priorities as well isn't it you know what I mean that it, it looks to the most disadvantaged first so rather than say bringing everybody along two notches what you're doing is you're going to the people who are the furthest behind pulling them forward absolutely you make a great point so one, one of the things that was really important about Porto Alegre that kind of got lost once the World Bank took this up and, and so um, Ernesto Ganuta and, and um, Gianpaolo Biocci, so two colleagues kind of working in Spain and the US that, that, that have pointed this out very well is that um, as PB travelled the globe, it got a bit more about inculcating good governance and less about radical redistribution of priorities. And the reason, one of the reasons that, one of the things that was really important in Porto Alegre was they actually redesigned the bureaucracy in important ways and kind of took a risk there. And one, one of the things they did was, for example, just pure putting offices or kind of like one-stop shops in the neighborhoods where a civil servant was sitting there in with the people or going, going out to it. So it's the government coming to you and encouraging you to get involved rather than, you know, them expecting you to come with them when you have a problem. So I remember talking to a, a, a kind of a TD Twelve years ago, I was in government, and uh, they tried. I, I was talking. I was trying to advocate for participatory democracy, and they they told me that's not what democracy is. Democracy is when uh, when X person has a problem, they come they come and ask me, and I fix it for them. Uh, and that's the classic clientelist version of what democracy is. But obviously, that is problematic because we're putting all our trust in one person or a few people to aggregate all the things. It's difficult. For, it makes it more difficult for them in some ways. So the idea is that yeah, people went out. One one thing to be to be to it's important to say there are hard to reach groups and they're, they're called hard to reach groups for a reason. Yeah. So it's not like this was a complete utopia where everyone who was excluded was suddenly participating in politics. What we get is that let you know you have a much greater bias towards the people who don't normally participate because democracy's unresolved dilemma as as Aaron Leipart calls it is that you know democracy is supposed to work by by the people who are getting less being able to amass and then uh being able to tell the people who have everything that they can't do that anymore because they have the power of numbers mm-hmm. um and that's that's kind of what uh people like uh Madison and Jefferson were worried about democracy about, and that's why they wanted a kind of a, a different sort of democracy in, in their constitutions. You know, we're think, when, we, when we think about it these days, it's, it's interesting that, you know, those groups that are, you know, probably less, you know, the, the one, this kind of occupy the 1% idea, that doesn't see, that corrective doesn't seem to work, right? So for some reason, the peop- and it's because there are various reasons why people are alienated from politics because of being in that kind of lower lower groups so at least what this did was it got those people into the room or, or more of them into the room and it clearly changed the priorities and like you said it was designed to do that with some very clever designs 
So I, I mentioned about the um, the kind of index thing I mentioned. About, there are other things that, that they did in some places. So I think in Bello, which then they adopted as well in Porto Alegre, which hasn't been adopted as much in every other place, but they definitely did it in some places like in Spain, is uh, that they'd get all the delegates who were... So, so after the neighbourhood meetings, you elect delegates and they meet as, as representatives of regions. But they're not really politicians. They're people you can kind of recall and they're people who live in the neighbourhoods in that sense and they're... They're, they're probably civil society advocates. Some of them are kind of have this capacity. So, so what you said about that is quite important. They're, they're slightly different to your kind of someone who's never participated. But as soon as you do a bit of it, you, you become a bit more like things. So there's kind of a paradox there that you become part of the political society the more you participate. But what they did was they got them on buses and just brought them around to the different regions of the city and said, here are the projects in this region that are proposed, here are the projects. And what that meant is, you'll know yourself that if you live in any kind of decent sized city there are you know people will stick to their suburbs they're going to the city center or they'll stick to their suburbs they're not going to go across to the other suburbs unless they have family there or know people there yeah. most of them won't know what it looks like a lot of them will never understand that on one side of the city all the parks are green on the other side of the city it's just concrete and and th- what that meant was that people maybe who were in more middle class suburbs and thought you know they need to fix my pothole went over to the other suburb and said oh holy god these people don't actually have functioning toilets. Yeah. Um, maybe we should invest there for a couple of years before they, they fix my pothole. So that, that was another important thing. And a, a final one I, I mentioned is that um, there was a principle of a rotation as well uh, in the design in Porto Alegre, which was that people held office for a couple of years on, on the kind of highest budget committee, and then they rotated out of that. But what I think was really interesting is they set the, the pe- people set the rules one year for the people who came the next year to implement. So there was kind of this separation of powers, if you like. And so these are all interesting designs that democratic theorists talk about all the time about how to inculcate better democracy. But in, in Prince of and Porto Alegre, which, which has since, it's worth saying, which has since disintegrated among political competition in, in, in Brazil, but for at least 20 years, 15 years or 20 years, this was really working as a kind of a way of doing um, uh, democracy differently. Uh, and so many accounts are quite utopian and it and, and really do seem like a kind of a real utopia for, for some time, at least in terms of how you might think about participatory democracy. And certainly they lifted lots of people out of poverty. Having gone there, you see the mayor come in and, you know, you think about how um, they come into a room and he'll just get a standing round of applause from kind of cleaners and people in the room who, who they feel that person has lifted me out of poverty in a way that... I wouldn't quite recognise from, from the political events I go to. I'm always struck by that. If anybody's familiar, I mean, we, you know, we've listeners all over the world. If anybody's had the chance to walk <clears throat> through the Phoenix Park in Dublin, Chesterfield Avenue is the main thoroughfare to this huge, huge, huge park we have in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And there are two very different Dublins at either end of it. Yeah. And I'm always yeah. struck by that. So the life, the life choices of a 16 year old living at one end of that park mm-hmm compared to the life choices of a 16 year old living at the opposite end of that park. And the park is, I think the avenue is about 4.2 kilometers. And I'm always struck by that. You don't have to travel that far to compare yourself, but it goes back to what you said earlier on about people like where they are and they are generally reluctant to cede power. And I think yeah. that's, that's a key part of it, isn't it? You know, that uh, It's completely rational, right? Yeah. If you've got something, you don't want to give it away. It's part of our psychology. It's mm. built into us. We actually know this from psychological experiments, right? If you give people a cup and you say that cup is worth 15 pounds or dollars or euros or whatever it is, uh, there's lots of experiments done where uh, um, they'll do this with students and they'll ask to buy back the cup and the students won't sell it until you offer them 25, 30 euros or, or pounds because it's, it's my cup. Right. I own this now. Yeah. So people are, are reluctant. I mean, that's a very kind of simplistic individual example, but um, we're looking to give up power because we're afraid. Right. You see this everywhere. And yeah. in, in very polarized societies, it's even worse, you know, in these kind of deeply divided societies, because your fear is that, um, uh, uh, you know, if you give if you give power to people who essentially you've been you kind of know yourself, you've been doing better then. Yeah. What are they going to do to me if they have power, right? Yeah. No, and that's you know that's the history of racism in the U.S. to some extent. I mean, it's not everything, but it's part of it. Um, 
just uh, uh, this kind of weird fear that that you, but like when people do it in the right way, yeah, um, they reap the rewards as well, you know, because um, you you get you get that ingenuity of the people that you're involving. Like people know best especially in local matters, but I think people know best what's good for them. You know, you, you have to understand that. There are obviously people who, there are obviously kind of some, uh, I, I get this, it's an interesting argument. There's some small C conservative arguments, you know, associated with people like Edmund Burke that, you know, you delegate to me and then I, I make the decision. There's certainly times that that's kind of a necessary thing. Too many cooks can spoil the broth and there, there there's a time for that in politics as well. But at least um, I don't think we have, too much you know not enough of that and too much participation at the moment we definitely have it the other way around yeah so i mean participatory budgeting then again sort of you know just to pick up some of the bits from the book where different designs in different communities will have different effects and that that half of them were discontinued within four years but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were failures so there was as much to be learned from the, just the process of putting it in place and what happened and how it happened. But as you said, it was difficult to kind of sort of say, you know, these are the factors that you need. But one thing that was vital was the top level political support. So yes. again, to quote, quote you back at you, no case suggests that the support of lower level officials can overcome the lack of support by a regional president. So obviously, you know, we wouldn't have regional presidents here, but that the political leader commitment was almost always necessary for success. So yeah, that's correct. That thing about that ability then to kind of, as you said, dilute your power is a big ask, isn't it? Because they're the people, we can have all the other factors in place, but if it doesn't come from there, it's not going to happen. Sure, it's not. So it was definitely the most close. So, so what, one thing I wanted to do with the, book and this is an observation I had and I wanted to kind of systematically show that you know prove as much as you can yeah one of the frustrations I have is that um uh the way some people talk about and I think it's the reason that participatory budgeting doesn't get taken up even though it's been taken up hugely all over the world but it doesn't get taken up in some places is that uh, particularly radical visions of it um people were talking about so many different necessary requirements. So you need to have the politicians uh, doing this. You need to have the civil society being vibrant and, and attacking the politicians. You need to have uh, loads of money to spend. You need to have all the bureaucrats on site. You need to have um, a huge high human development. It needs to be big. All this kind of, it needs to be, it needs to be. I mean, if I'm a politician looking at that, I'm thinking, well, we won't do that then. So I'm never going to get all those things happening at once. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, that's always something that, Anyway, isn't that what they say? Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, you know, um, what, one thing I wanted to show was that, like, are there any necessary conditions? And I kind of systematically do that using some complicated methodology. Like, I don't yeah. think we'll go into this <laughs> podcast, but um, uh, so there is no, at least in the short run, there's no necessity. So there are a couple of cases where um, you have leaders who are quite skeptical about participation and then eventually you get good outcomes because they get convinced that this is actually working. So, so in all these cases, participatory budgeting happens. I don't look at cases where participatory doesn't, that would be a different question about, you know, why do we not have participatory budgeting? But I'm, I'm interested in when do citizens get actually, actually get control of the, of the decisions? When do they set the agendas? When do they make the decisions to an important extent? And um, when is it a repeated process where, where they can regularly expect that this isn't just going to fall down tomorrow? And uh, in those cases, basically, if there were a couple of cases where in the first couple of years um, in Buenos Aires and Toronto where, 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 let's say, the PB got away with the politicians looking the other way. In fact, it was almost like a, a positive because the staff people who were interested in putting this in, in, in place and the civil society organizations were allocating the required funds and being very dedicated to doing it well. But obviously, once political competition got in the way, those cases really um, uh, uh, fell, fell, fell apart in various, in various ways. Um, there are a couple of other cases then where the participatory leadership wasn't there at the start. And then the, 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 the political leader might have been skeptical, but realized that actually this is a vehicle where it, which is popular and I can increase my popularity by supporting it more. So there are a couple, a couple of cases like that as well in Peru, for example, in Cusco. So... 
that Stephanie McNulty has a good kind of case study on that. So th there are, um, you know, uh, there are differences, but basically in the long run, there are no cases where uh, um, you have successful citizen control without um, the participation, the, the, the kind of the leaders committing to participation, both not just in the words, but in, in, in the way that they allocate resources and they put time into doing the participatory budget properly. There's one downside to that, which is that eventually that if you have strong participatory leadership, and this is something that hasn't quite been cracked for, for participatory budgeting advocates, obviously with any policy or, or kind of institution like this, which is new, your expectations can't be that it's just going to rumble on forever and it might change, it might be adapted, it might die, it might get resurrected. And there's some studies now coming out about, you know, why that happens, for example, in Portugal and places like that, but where there's been a lot of PB. But so one problem is if it becomes very associated with one person, party or coalition of parties, obviously in, in political competition, the opposition probably want to, it's very difficult for them to take down a very popular program but at the same time, they will want to differentiate because that's kind of how they're going to seek power. So it's kind of reasonable that they they will then potentially put something different in. And that's what that's what's happened in various places where participation has eventually ended or kind of molded into something else. I'm quite sanguine about that happening if it's something that is potentially better. It might be that they come up with multiple channels for citizens to engage. And that's, you know, this kind of this multi-channel democracy that a colleague in Wayne Polo Spada works a lot on, which happens now in... Madrid and Barcelona, where you have PB is kind of one of the ways in which people engage, but they can also just engage in kind of online platforms where they just throw up ideas or discuss things and they're purely deliberative and they're, they're not necessarily about budgets or something like that. So you can, it might be that you, what you're getting with PB is just this kind of underlying understanding of participatory democracy and this capacity building within the citizens and civil society of, of how to do things a little bit better and understanding how to design institutions. It's not clear that that's definitely true or not. And I don't really have the data because it's just not been going on long enough to say if that kind of fundamental reordering of how we think about democracy in society, I wager it probably is true in some places. Um, uh, would be interesting to look a bit more at the medium sized cities where you don't have this kind of obvious vibrant civil society pushing for places to to think about whether that happens. So th those are the, that's the kind of, yeah, that's that's how it works with participatory leadership. It's definitely a necessary condition for 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 citizen control over the over the long term. Even though there are some caveats to that that I've kind of outlined. I know, even though it has spread worldwide, and some of the links in the book I was looking at, it's the participatory budgeting world atlas, so that yeah. you can see all across the world what's happening. And Ireland is empty. So I know that we, we have had one instance in South County Dublin, which again, I suppose you know, people can maybe go and, and look at, but that was, there was one instance of it, which I think was quite successful, but it was a pilot basis. And Dublin City Council are currently looking, I think, at maybe kind of reviewing to see whether it is something that they can do. But at the moment it isn't, it's not a thing here. So there's a couple of things. What, so. It's tricky to understand the diffusion of innovations. Like one of the interesting things about PB, which which you know is something that I love, is that it's the anti-colonialism, right? It's so it's an innovation that's coming from um, uh, the global south, if you like, mm -hmm. or from a low and middle low and middle income countries, and then spreading to the north. So it's like um, I think Giovanni Adagredi, who's another colleague, describes it as the kind of uh, the return of the caravels, right? Suddenly they're coming back and telling us how to do do democracy, and um, uh, I think uh, that's that's obviously through the world, people involved in the World Social Forum and the various and the World Bank and kind of because the UN Habitat program took it up. That's one of the reasons why it's kind of gone in some of the directions it has and it's spread, first of all, kind of through the Lucifone world and then into the Hispanophone world and the Francophone world. So I had to Google Lucifone when you said that in the book. So that's the Portuguese speaking world. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I probably had to Google that at one point as well. But um, uh, they, uh, yeah, but so for example, it, it's been not North America. There was some, there was some kind of exchanges with Canada earlier on. So there were some Canadian cases, but it's in in the US. It's kind of flourished only in the last five or six, well, maybe five to ten years. So it's only in the last ten years that you have kind of New York and um, places in California and, and and various US cities engaging with. PB and um, so they're kind of in this kind of let's say third wave of PB after it kind of started 
from Brazil to Latin America and then um, to Europe. And, and, and then and so a couple of reasons why it might be less happening less in Ireland. One would be that, you know, maybe it's just that though it's, you know, this diffusion comes through policy practitioners that know each other, that build networks. And maybe we just haven't, you know, Irish networks haven't kind of met them as often. Probably they have, but maybe not as, I mean, you guys are talking about it. So, you know, there's obviously some diffusion and I was taught about it in 2006 when I was doing my undergraduate or whatever. So that, so that happened. But um, uh, the other, the other main reason why it's been slow to take off in places like the UK and Ireland is just the local, local the way that local government works, right? They don't have that much control over budgets. Yeah, yeah it's very um, for a start, mm. very centralised. Um, so, like, I mean, in my experience in Ireland, obviously, as someone who was being politically socialised in the in the two thousands in, in Ireland, you know, there there were participatory planning things in some places, mm. very few, very radical ones. Most public consultation in Ireland is. Not great. I don't think that's the fault of the people who do it. I think that they have to kind of do too much too often and don't and, and, and can't really, you know, think get the time to change things and do things very well. And that's probably where you need the space for kind of groups like social justice learning to do some of the thinking for them and get, you know, give them the, you know, um give them that that kind of information about how you might uh, move into doing more participatory budgeting. It's been, uh, I mean, in England, it, it was quite associated under, like under the kind of end of Blair Brown era, there was um, a couple of politicians that got quite interested in PB and were trying to mandate it for police budgets and for um, things like school budgets. So it's happening at a very local level uh, in England. But that kind of petered out because Cameron came in with his big society and it, it, it got kind of folded into that, but he had other ideas about, about, about how to do things, some, some, some kind of similar stuff. But all of that was very low level, what, what we can tend to call funny money. So where you kind of find some money in the budget down the back of the coach and you say, oh, let's let the people talk about that because we didn't think we'd have that surplus this year. They can do something nice with that, maybe have. And it was great in a way. Uh, there's now some of it going on in, in Scotland where the, the, the Scottish government have kind of, Slight, kind of mandated or not mandated but yeah in a soft way got local councils doing um at least one percent of our budget which is still a significant amount of money in some places to be decided by a pv process but for for whatever reason that contagion hasn't got into got into ireland yet it might be to do with various explanations it's not something i've looked into systematically and i've been living in the uk long enough now that i i don't have the context there to really ask the questions but maybe that's another project I think again to pick up on one or two of the things you said our housing new housing for all strategy was released the end of last week and there's a line in that ireland is fortunate to have a planning system that enables considerable public participation so as you said certain things involve public participation but you know i suppose maybe to kind of try and wind this up because i think you and me could probably talk for another four hours yeah. easily enough <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I realise I talk a lot, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um, in in the in the recent the draft, like so, a national risk assessment, the recent one here, so the draft national risk assessment here, um, one of the risks that they've identified is youth dissatisfaction with democracy. So yeah, you know that, it, and it's not a life cycle effect. So that what what you've got is is a worry that younger people especially now say coming through COVID, especially yesterday when the CAO results were out and a mm -hmm. combination of um, the way that the Leaving Cert was done last year has kind of everybody's points went up, but then the entry levels went up that, you know, young people who, who, who will be old people someday, you know what I mean? So, you know, will be middle-aged, will be councillors, yes. will be TDs, will be voters, that if they become completely disenfranchised with democracy, that that is a big worry and especially as people maybe find other ways to express themselves and we, you know we do see it now across Europe across the US that sort of changing dynamic who are we going to blame for our problems how are we going to fix our problems so there there would hopefully be space for participatory budgeting in Ireland as we we move ahead and I, I know you've You've ended the book with four steps to improve citizen participation where you are now, which is yeah. set your expectations, keep informed, be patient, don't be scornful of middling outcomes. As you said, democracy it pleases nobody. <laughs> nobody gets yeah. what they want. And to engender the conditions for multiple key actors to, to support programmes. So 
there is there are things that we can do at local levels, at national levels, at regional levels. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, look, what you said about the youth, first of all, is it's really important. Uh, there was a few pioneers, you know, you know, 20, 15 years ago, people like Peter Mayer among them, and they were saying that look, we gotta we gotta be careful. There's this trend that you know people are getting disenfranchised with democracy, and uh, you know we didn't really do it. Some people started to try and think of these democratic innovations as a way of trying to kind of get people involved in different ways because they were alienated by the politics that was already there. Uh, the issue is that, and one of the nice things about what you're talking about is those those people who are getting who are not getting good outcomes are going to be socialized into politics and that's good, right? So they will be, the problem is that they might be socialized into a politics of populism and snake oil salesmen, right? And we see, we see a lot of that, which is what you're getting at, right? We see this kind of very extreme polarization and support for um, people who are kind of selling visions of, of, of the world that are unrealistic and setting expectations that are unrealistic that are just going to disappoint people again, but very reasonable for people to support those people in my view, given that, uh, they, you know, I, I, I talk to people living in, in working class areas of Southampton where I am here and they'll say, well, we voted Labour and nothing changed. We voted Tory and nothing changed. Yeah. Now we're going to vote UKIP and now we're going to vote for whoever else because, yeah. you know, our lives don't change. Quite quite reasonable thing. So maybe this doing these things is a way of kind of heading off some of that disenchantment because it actually involves people and they can see why. And that's the deliberate thing. They can see why decisions are being made and they can obviously contribute and hopefully make sure that decisions are made in their in their interests a bit more. So I think that's kind of the the message about you know th- that. And there are, there are actually a lot of youth PBs being done in places like um, Boston did a youth PB. There's um, uh, there's ones that are quite popular in Portugal. So so school, school PBs. There was a kind of a big school PB in Porto Charente region of France under under Ségolène Royal. Those things are happening targeted targeted at groups. I think yeah the overall message is kind of try this try it out i think but before you try it out don't do a rubbish version of it do something that you know um is actually emancipatory um and 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 do it you know have the courage of your convictions and i know how much strain there is under you know all, all government are under immense strain right now especially and have been kind of on high alert for well they're always like that anyway but have an extreme high alert for for a little while but um that's would be the message is that, like I said, there are no necessary conditions, really. There, you, there, in every what what I show in the book is that in almost all this book is based on all the older accounts, detailed accounts of cases that we have. So I wanted to bring that information together in a systematic way, and what it shows is that there is no real scenario, despite looking at places over three different cont- continents and different sizes of things, are focused on different uh, groups. There's no real scenario where this condition means that PB will fail and this condition means it succeeds. That's not the case, really. We talked about the participatory readership to an extent, but effectively there are, I mean, in the book, what I try to show is that there are a couple of things that you can focus on depending on the context that you're in, whether it's building that political support because you have everything else, or it might be that you have the political support, but then what you need to build is bureaucratic capacity or the financial um, uh, capacity within the municipality then, then if you do the PB, it's more likely it's it's probably going to be successful. You know, that there, most cases like that, it's successful that I looked at. So those are the kind of things that people need to recognize and, and need to think about if they're going to bring bring in participatory programs. But it's quite an exciting thing to do, really, for 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 a government if they have kind of that bit of resource because you know you will get better outcomes there's right, there's other research i could go on about which is about whether whether this leads to re-election or not and that's probably of interest to politicians and that but uh, at least at least what a lot of people get and what what you get from doing this research is that there's a huge buzz about people going into a room and really holding each other to account and talking to each other about their local place and recognizing that there's you know youths that want a skate park built because they have nowhere to hang out or there's uh, older people who need have mobility issues and need the paving sorted, and then talking to each other about those things and whether where the money should go. That's really what politics is all about. So if we can get if we can get them doing that, then I don't see what you know. There's there's not 
there's a cost to it, like you said. We can't, you know, people have to put time and energy into this, but it seems pretty worthwhile. I think you're right because it allows you to walk past something and say, I did that. See that? I did that. Yeah. My, my community yeah. is now a better place because I did that. And I think you're right. Like there are political gains as well to be had from that because I suppose one thing we haven't touched on is that when difficult decisions need to be made. So this isn't all about here's some money and go do something amazing with it. The reality of politics is actually money is a scarce resource, uh, which I have my own very strong opinions on as to whether it is or not. But you know, for, for most of us, a government is saying, I have a bucket here of 2.4 million. Um, what you want is going to cost 3.4 million. Something's got to give. So actually allowing individuals to say, okay, um, we understand that the roads aren't going to get fixed this year. We understand that that school isn't going to get built this year. So even the difficult, the, the, the unpopular or difficult decisions that are being made about money that isn't being spent also benefits from this participatory process. Absolutely. And you'll get the more, like, it's the collective ingenuity that you want to tap into. It's like getting people in a room and they'll say, if you think about the housing issue, they might say, well, okay, we, we have some options here. None of them are great, but we can increase taxes to pay for this. Yeah. We can accept that there's going to be foreign investment, but we want X controls on it. We want to negotiate around that. Um, we can, you know, so those are, the, we can accept that there might have to be a rent cap, but, um, you know, we can think about how people can sit and invest and lower the costs of, of yeah, I mean, look, I'm not an expert in housing, but those are the kind of discussions that you can have. And people have enough expertise in what they want and what they're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. That they can that get, then mold that. With experts. And look, we have experience with this in Ireland. We, we, we've had this really good citizens convention, which is a different kind of design um, and, and, and the citizens assembly design. Um, and that wasn't what yeah, that wasn't what led to that wasn't the only thing that led to changes. It's been a huge 20, 30 years of, of change in Irish society that led to some of these constitutional changes we've seen. Um, but it was definitely a necessary condition because, like you said, it created a safe space or this other space where people could discuss things. Uh, in a way that you know might change minds and, and and lead them to make different kinds of recommendations. So I think those are the kind of things that these. It's the same with referendums. Those are the kind of things that these innovations in de- democracy bring. These other ways of doing things is a, is another way of breaking deadlocks of allowing. Um, you know, like you said, it's kind of good for various different people. Um, one of the potential criticisms. I know we should stop, stop talking in a minute, but one of it is, is that. <laughs> is that politicians are, are kind of offloading responsibility, right, you know, we're paying them to do it. And they might even say that themselves. Um, you know, I was responsible for doing this. So it, it's not that all the theoretical debates about what democracy is that we talked about at the start are going to go away. And I, I have total sympathy for a lot of those, 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 those things. But I think, you know, yeah, we could probably do with a bit more of uh, opportunity for people to make informed, considered decisions amongst themselves. I promise I'll stop talking soon as well. But again, you've you've really I've done most of talking. <laughs> We're going to be going back and forth. Just one more thing, but you've you've really hit on something that I think is very important. So we currently have these public participation networks where community groups can mm. come together and influence policy at local authority level. And what you had put in in, in the book was. Um, it reinforces what's really an age-old lesson in political science when politicians devolve authority without also providing for the same capabilities and support that they themselves would expect from making policies. They are devolving problems and not power. So expecting a group of um, you know, private individuals to come together and support policy and discuss policy making without really giving them the mm-hmm. same, you know, as you said, you've got an advisor for this and an advisor for that. And uh, you know, you have a team of civil servants like that. It is a huge ask. But again, the participedia.net is another great resource for people to look to see. As you said, there's yeah. lots of different ways of, of getting involved. I mean, you could go down a rabbit hole on that on that yep. website for a very long time. I'd advise time. you to. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I get a, I'll try and put a link up to that, but that's a really interesting, as you said, there, there are more ways of coming at this than just the budgeting aspect. There are lots of yes. different ways. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, sometimes participatory budgeting will be the right thing to do. Sometimes yeah. it'll be something else. And But what what's really nice is that, like, I, I'm amazed by these people who think of these designs. I wouldn't have the, the, the radical mindset to be able to think of something that 
and you know I'm supposed to be kind of creative academic or whatever but um you know I I, I I'm quite you know humbled by the people who came up with the, these ideas um you know and put them in more so actually the people who put them into practice because that's the really hard bit but like you said look I, that's a really important point for me one of the criticisms about so I, I talked a little bit about um what happened in a lot of places after 2007 2008 and it's going to be more so now is that a lot of participation was not participation participatory budgeting but like participatory cutting like there was just yeah. no um there was nothing but like where, where are we going to make really difficult decisions and some of this should be about hopefully thinking about spending like in Porto Alegre they actually increased the tax tech because people said well it's not just about who knows the mob boss or who knows the who's who knows the patron and who's who's voting for them it's actually about you know um uh, potentially if we get involved in this you know so, so that's something that happened it, I mean there's it's not clear that that happens everywhere but uh, I think it, it, it requires that investment reorganization of the bureaucracy let's say to be able to you know give people that information you mentioned the planning process like that's something where you know bet, better planning participation involves the planners actually talking to the people and explaining to them the decisions that they're making and showing them the maps and it's like sitting down with with an expert so all of these innovations a lot of them are trying to bring the kind of innate expertise that people have about what's best for them yeah. and not just have like there's a lot of listen to the science going on now but scientists can be pretty stupid about what's actually happening on on at ground level in normal people's lives and I, I can give you examples of that if I had more time but <laughs> at the same time we do need to listen to experts as well we don't want to be uh thinking that we know everything and uh you know there's big challenges like climate change where we have to do that and we have to think about you know there's really difficult decisions to be made but there's also really good things that we can do together and a lot of these innovations are kind of trying to bring that those different kinds of expertise together rather than just having one group making the decision and the other group kind of uh, following along but feeling like they're completely left out or that their priorities haven't been taken into account. That's a perfect sentence, I think, to end the conversation on. Sounds good. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much, Matt. That's fantastic. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, any topics that you'd like us to explore or discuss, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.